when I have these discussions, it, it comes up relatively frequently. You know, people like the idea of a threshold. My, my guess is that that gives you something binary to latch onto, to go, oh, well, these guys are okay and these guys aren't. You know, because people, I suppose, want to maybe try and action something. But I think that's quite problematic. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. The podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about asymmetries, and we have the godfather of asymmetries with us in Chris Bishop. So anyone that's ever had athletes jump on a force plate or jumped on a force plate themselves, especially a, well, particularly a dual force plate with two, you will know about asymmetry data and the amount of metrics that are derived from force plates from a single counter movement jump. So it's them two things that we dive into within this episode so asymmetries to start with how they're calculated their use in rehab in fatigue monitoring and profiling then we have a little chat around the use of force plates in general so how we get to the metrics that matter again using fatigue using rehab and using profiling as those three buckets where um where force plates may be used the most so a really interesting episode coming up with chris and i think there's some things in there that might surprise people given the amount of work that chris has done within this area so maybe something to think about at the end of how useful asymmetries may be in those three buckets so really appreciate chris's time and it's an episode i'm sure you'll love this episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30 day free trial. So, without further ado, over to the episode with Chris. Chris Bishop, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. We've got the guru, godfather, any other cool names when it comes to asymmetries. And we're going to chat about that a bit later on. So thank you for Mate, coming Mate, thank you very much indeed for having me. That's uh, very, very kind. Uh, very, very excited to be here. And yeah, for anyone who is uh, not tuned out already, uh, we will be talking a little bit about asymmetry, but hopefully some other things too. Absolutely. Anyone that doesn't know your story would you mind just giving us a bit of a background you what you're currently doing yeah sure um okay so uh i actually did an undergrad degree um that i graduated from in 2003 in geography um and then i kind of thought i wanted to go into the fitness industry and do some personal training so i did that at david lloyd from about sort of the end of 2003 ish until um 2006 from then uh, I got my first kind of performance related role working at Luton Town okay for a little while uh which was which was really really good really really enjoyable um but anyone who knows the history of Luton Town they've been in administration a few times in the past sort of 20 years um my services got cut when they went into administration, which isn't surprising. I then went and worked um, at a private kind of healthcare slash sports performance business, okay, called Optimum. And um, it's like an Exos type model, just a, a lot, lot smaller. And um, I, I sort of led the, the performance side of the business there for a little while. Uh, whilst I was there, when I did my master's at Middlesex University, where I currently uh, teach, and that was from 2011 to 2012. Post-MSC, I went and did a, a little bit of um, helping out down at Middlesex for one year. After that year, I then got offered some more kind of solidified part-time hours. 
2014, um, a role came up at the university um, and I was fortunate enough to get it. have been there ever since, uh, initially teaching on the undergraduate program in sport and exercise science and strength and conditioning. 2016, I took over running the master's program uh, in strength and conditioning from uh, my colleague, Professor Anthony Turner. And then I still do that now. I also oversee uh, all of the postgraduate uh, sports science courses at Middlesex University. So I have this additional director of postgraduate programs role, uh, which is which is good when things run smoothly and has its challenges when, you know, things like staff leave, but I'm sure you could say that anywhere. Um, and then uh, that's taken me up to where I am now. And then I guess in the middle of that period from sort of 2017 to 2021, I was also on the board of directors at the UK Strength and Conditioning Association. That's probably the, the whirlwind summary, mate. Absolutely. That sounds good. Right, I reckon we dive straight in because there's, there's, we've got a list as long as your arm to go through. So uh, let's dive in. So anyone that knows you, even though if they don't know your backstory, they'll have read at least, surely people that are listening have read at least one of your papers and will know you from the asymmetry side of research, but then moving into the um, force plate, use of force plate data and choosing the right metrics and all that kind of thing. So we'll dive all, all the way into that. But what do we know? about asymmetries what do we know and what don't we know about asymmetries okay. so i reckon anyone who's come across any one of our papers has probably looked at the abstract and then gone <sighs> so this podcast is really quite good because i'm guessing that actually people haven't read the work um so okay what do we know and what don't we know about asymmetries okay so predominantly most of our work is focused on performance rather than the injury side of things um from the link between asymmetry and performance can probably be divided into two kind of relatively rough key areas, right? One, the first is looking at uh, associative studies. So people who have designed studies that look to correlate um, an asymmetry index from one test with performance in another test. So that could be something like jump height asymmetry from a single leg counter movement jump test and let's run relationships or correlations with how fast you run during sprinting or change of direction speed tests. Now, um, I did my systematic review on this um, for my PhD and I actually, I look back at my systematic review now and I think, oh God, you know, there's, there's definitely some improvements that I'd make on that now if I did that. But you know, that's science and we learn and all that stuff. Um, the overarching summary for those types of studies is that they've kind of been split into asymmetry being measured in strength tasks, jumping tasks, sport specific tasks and then there's a few random ones that have been measured in sprinting anthropometry balance and things like that and then each of those asymmetry metrics from any one of those different physical characteristics or tasks has been correlated against some other kind of independent task in sport or physical performance generally speaking the strength asymmetry studies indicate that the larger your asymmetry, the worse you do on the task. Remember, this is all associative study design, so it's not cause and effect. Um, the jumping studies, I would say, probably are roughly 60-40. Okay, 60% being the larger your asymmetry during jumping, whether that's bilaterally or unilaterally, the worse you do on an independent task. Okay, um, the sport-specific tasks, I'm probably not as up-to-date with them as I was, you know, when I was doing my PhD. Um, I found eight at the time when I did my systematic review, and we're going back about six, seven years now, and 75% of them said, if you're asymmetrical within the sporting task itself, the outcome of that sporting task is not as good as it could be, should you be more symmetrical, shall we say, right? So an example of that would be um, in swimming, they would tie swimmers you know, with a tether in the pool, they would get them to swim, measure their peak force or their impulse asymmetry, 
um, in the water and then relate that back to how fast they do a 50 meter, you know, trial in the water. Okay, that would be like a sports specific type study design. And then interestingly, the sprinting ones show the exact opposite. It doesn't matter, you know, how asymmetrical you are during the action of sprinting doesn't make you any slower. Okay, that's what the, the evidence from those correlational study designs tell us. And I'm probably not as up to date as those study designs in the last two years or so. But at one point, maybe two or three years ago, there was about collectively across that domain, there was maybe about 30 studies and roughly about six. I think it was something like 69 percent of them showed that if the asymmetry is larger, there is an association with doing an independent task worse rather than better. So and then. There was one study in cycling that fell under the sports specific banner that actually said the larger the asymmetry, the better you do in a, like a four kilometer time trial. I think it was something like that. So it's rare for there to be an association between larger asymmetries and better performance. It's more common for there to be an association between larger asymmetries relating back to worse performance. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that you know virtually every study out there nearly all of them have just been conducted at a single time point okay and i think single time point studies have their limits you know and have their limitations um and the reason why that's important for asymmetry in my opinion is because asymmetry is a, a very very noisy construct yeah it's uh, we have left legs right legs we have dominant or non-dominant uh, injured versus uninjured, however we're defining it, each limb has its own noise when we test, you know, whatever the test, whatever the metric is, then we create this relative percentage number that combines that set of data, and that typically adds more noise to it. And that's usually reflected in a very, very large standard deviation in the group mean data relative to the mean value. So you might have 10% asymmetry for 20 athletes. That's the average asymmetry value in jump height, for example. But the standard deviation of that number might be 8% or it might be 9%. So my standard deviation is 80 or 90% of my mean. And that is massive compared to a sort of typical performance related metric like jump height itself, or peak force, or sprint time, something like that, where for those performance-related metrics, we might expect a standard deviation of something like 10 to 30%. So what does a really big standard deviation mean, and why does that matter? Well, it, that tells us that there's a lot of within-group variation going on in the scores. And when you look at test-retest designs on asymmetry, it's common for the group mean asymmetry value, not really to have changed much, but that's because group-based statistics rely somewhat on the value of the standard deviation when you're testing for differences. And um, when you have this massive standard deviation, it stops you from finding differences. So the story then becomes, there's no change between session one and session two or point A or point B. But when you start looking at the data on an individual level, each individual, you know, athletes asymmetry scores from session one to session two or time point this to time point that, um, there's enormous change. You know, some people have a magnitude of asymmetry at 20%. Next time it's six. You know, some people have an asymmetry of 7%. Next time it swaps sides to the other leg. And we'll talk about directionality a bit later to like minus five. And so the mean value kind of evens itself out somewhat. But on an individual level, it's gross, huge changes. So when we start trying to quantify relationships between asymmetry and performance, when you know there's that much change from session to session and even trial to trial within the same session, who's to say that you would get anything like the same results again the next time? Okay, so I think there's some real limitations to that kind of um, single time point associative study design. And, and and let's, you know, let anyone who's listening know, I've done plenty of them. And, you know, anyone I'm criticizing, I'm criticizing myself just as much as anyone else there. 
The second domain um, is training interventions, okay, from an asymmetry and performance standpoint. Now, um, an ex-MSC student of mine did a really nice meta-analysis on this, and, and there wasn't loads of data. So, you know, some, you know, statistical experts out there might say, well, was there enough to really do that? Um, we found eight studies. What we found was uh, a series of within and between group study designs. So what that means is for within group study designs, uh, authors have designed a study where they collect data at baseline, then they collect data after a training intervention, maybe it's six weeks, and it was a strength and power training intervention, training twice a week, for example. And then they measured asymmetry pre and post, and they're seeing whether the same people okay, reduce or increase their asymmetry after the intervention. Now, the differences slightly favor, you know, doing something, doing some training for that group. But because there's no control group, we don't really know in those studies, actually, you could do nothing like and be in a control group and still get the same effect. Because actually, the, the change in asymmetry during those within group study designs were pretty small. Um, and importantly, what we also don't know really is um, if I change my asymmetry, does that make me do a task any better? You know, that's that's really the important question. You know, everyone seems to think about asymmetry and intuitively you think, oh, there's this imbalance. Uh, I, I should correct that. But But actually, we don't really know if we should. And then for the studies and there was only a couple that used a control group um again it seemed like if you were part of the intervention group you would reduce your asymmetry more than being in a control group but um it was very rare to reach you know any meaningful significance when we run the stats on it uh the other thing was when we were classifying these studies into different asymmetry outcome measures like single leg counter movement jump height asymmetry, single leg broad jump distance asymmetry, single leg lateral jump distance asymmetry. There was like two or three studies in each subcategory. So there's not really enough data to tell us anything. We did run the stats on it. And again, because the data is quite minimal, unsurprisingly, we didn't really find much. Um, and I think the main thing for me to take away from that is not that, oh, well, let's get more training interventions trying to reduce asymmetry. I think the smarter thing, and, and it's a question, it's kind of a rhetorical question, I suppose, that I'm not sure I totally have the answer to yet, is we need better, better designed studies that look to try and determine if I do change, you know, my magnitude of asymmetry, do I then, you know, perform better in, I'm, I was going to say sport, but there's so many uncontrollable variables in sport. How would you really know? Do I perform better in, you know, surrogate measures that we know are important to sport? And there was one study that was done uh, by an Italian author called Sanicandro. Um, and it's quite well designed in fairness. And it was in youth tennis players. And what he did, you know, he did like a six week training intervention that it was kind of very movement based. You know, it's here's some squats here and here's some jumps here. But he also did it on, you know wobble boards and stuff like that because predominantly they were sort of 14 years old I think something like that and there was a very big reduction in a couple of different jump asymmetry indexes you know from like group mean data changing from nine percent to three percent but then when you looked at like sprinting and change of direction speed times pre and post they didn't get any faster you know so I don't know whether there was a direct you know you can't I don't know if you can say there's a direct cause and effect there but I can tell you that from that data the way it was presented they did a really good job of reducing asymmetry but didn't make the kids any faster so you know it, how important is that really you know I think is something for for consideration so I think when you collectively bring all that together training interventions associative designs um you know, there was probably no one back in 2016 when I started my PhD going into this thinking, oh, we're going to reduce asymmetry and it's going to make a big difference. But the evidence base is pretty weak um, across the board, I would say. 
So given the fact that we had we chatted about this beforehand, you get asked a lot of questions from institutes, professional teams, professional teams academies. You've got an oversight on this because people are coming to you because of what you've just described over the last 10, 12 minutes. Are people taking that and going, I'm not sure about this. Like maybe we should put our resources and attention somewhere else. Or are people still kind of going down this rabbit hole and trying to trying to understand it and and spending a lot of time on it and 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 just to, just to bring that to a bit of a, a head do you think that it is worth diving into and going deeper and deeper and deeper or do you think based on your phd coming out the back end going I'm not sure about this yeah, now yeah yeah good question so um i guess there's two parts to that you know is what are practitioners doing? You know, what, what's my sense of what practitioners are doing? And, um, you know, what, is there anything meaningful we can kind of take from it really, right? So um, I guess the discussions with practitioners over the years, um, my message has probably evolved a bit, you know, as my understanding has, has changed. Um, and I suppose that... It wouldn't surprise me if people are still monitoring it in their, you know, athlete management system softwares. It's, you know, it's a metric that they report on the dashboard or it's in their spreadsheet. Um, I do think that from some discussions, because it does come up when when I have these discussions, it, it comes up relatively frequently. You know, people like the idea of a threshold, you know, and um, my guess, yeah, my, my guess is that um that gives you something binary to latch onto to go oh well um you know these guys are okay and these guys aren't you know because people uh, i suppose want to maybe try and action something you know and and uh but but i think that's quite problematic you know i've i've written a piece it's actually the first ever article i wrote solo actually it was a just an opinion piece in NSCA's strength and conditioning journal about interlim asymmetries are thresholds a usable concept and i think if you look at where the concept of thresholds is originated from i think for the most part it stemmed from injury-based literature where studies have suggested that if you have a 15 percent asymmetry you're more likely to get injured uh, if you dive into the specifics in the methods about where that that number comes from some studies are quantifying normative data in healthy people. And by saying, well, the average symmetry is 85% or the average asymmetry is 15% for these healthy people, anything above that means you're at risk, which is a bit, you know, a, you know it's a bit of a stretch to say the least because um, you're not really actually investigating anyone who's injured. Um, lots of other people have then cited, you know, one or two studies like that. More recently, that number seems to have gravitated and shifted to 10% um, in studies that have more directly uh, looked at a link between imbalance and injury. Um, my issue with that, I suppose, is I've already mentioned this, actually, so I, there might be a bit of this in this podcast. So sorry about that, is, is the repeatability of that information. You know, if you know that something's really noisy, there's a lot of variation and that the outcome of asymmetry, whatever the test or whatever the metric, changes from session to session. It's almost like you ran the data, found something, but but maybe due diligence would be, you know, run it again a month later and does, does it still tell you the same thing? I haven't really seen studies do that. Um, and that's kind of my issue, so to speak, is, is the repeatability of something that we know is noisy. And if your data tells you something, it tells you something because it happened to tell you something at that moment in time. But for something so noisy, I would put a good chunk of money on it not showing you the same thing if you then tested for it again. Um, so I think that's where some of the threshold concepts comes from. I also think as well, if you know, people very often monitor more than one metric from a given test, you know, jumping's a really good example of that, right? They'll monitor jump height and uh, power and RSI mod and, you know, time to take off, whatever, whatever it might be. And if I've got this threshold of 10% or whatever it is that means I'm at risk of injury, jump height 
might show an asymmetry of 11%, but all the other metrics will give me a different magnitude. And now does that mean that jump height's my risk factor, but all the others aren't, when all they are is metrics from the same test? That, you, that can't make sense to me, right? And that's really, really common, um, you know, in, in data. We've probably looked at near nearly, I don't know how many, maybe 250 asymmetry data sets over the years. It's a very task and metric specific concept. Um, so, you know, how would it be possible that one metric from a given test is a risk factor, but all the other metrics from the exact same test aren't? You know, they're not separate tests. They're just metrics that we get from, um, you know, from the same test. So that in itself is, is also seems like a bit of a flawed concept. So how do we use the data and should we, can it be, is it usable and um, how would I use it? Okay, so I think one of the, the important things that we haven't touched on yet is that it's a ratio metric, right? Which, oh, I did mention it briefly earlier, actually, sorry, that it's, you know, two sources of information pulled together and that increases the noise. But predominantly, most of the literature on asymmetry over the last 30 or 40 years has treated asymmetry as a single metric, but it isn't. It's a ratio. It has different parts to it, you know, left or right, dominant, non-dominant, whatever. Um, and I think it's really, really important to try and understand the component parts of any ratio. And the issue is not um, data that you collect at any one moment in time. The issue is when you try and establish or track change over time. And the reason why that's relevant is because no one in sports science collects data at one time point and just stops. Like we don't do that, right? We track, we look for trends, we look for change. So if an asymmetry changes from 10% to 6%, intuitively, from discussions with some people, people would intuitively think, well, that's good, that's heading in the right direction. You know, again, assuming that lower is better, right? Um, but if I turn around and I went, how did it change? You know, there are multiple ways that that 10% can become 6%. You know, the weaker leg could have got stronger to minimize that imbalance. Uh, the stronger leg could have got weaker, you know, to minimize that imbalance. Uh, they both could have improved, but at different magnitudes. They both could have got worse, but at different magnitudes. And I think um, if the only way that you know how something changes or you know how a ratio metric changes is to go back and interpret the component parts. I sometimes now struggle to see a little bit what value the ratio metric holds, you know, because it's not about data at any one time point. It's about tracking change and seeing that that's changes happening the way you think it should or the way you want it to as a practitioner for that athlete. But if I go, tell me why it changed, and you go, oh, hang on a second, let me just go back to the dominant and non-dominant scores. What's it giving you that the dominant, non-dominant scores aren't? And I feel like my way of thinking now has come round to probably the way that Franco and Pelizzeri thinks about ratios. He's probably thought this for, you know, the best part of 15 years. He's probably sat there in Australia wondering why the rest of the world hasn't figured this out. Um, you know, and I feel like over the past few years, I'm starting to figure it out. But uh, I would just say to Franco, you know, I got there in the end um, type thing. But I think the one scenario where asymmetry data might be usable is... Um, First and foremost, a really important concept that Tim XL from the University of Portsmouth came up with is that for an asymmetry to be considered real, um, the interlimb percentage difference, so the between limb relative percentage value that we create, that we construct, needs to be greater than the intralimb variability. Now, if you take a single leg test, remember, um, you get scores on your left, you get scores on your right, you get a percentage difference if you create it, but you also get variability like, you know, standard error measurement or coefficient variation scores for both left and right limbs separately because it's a single leg test, right? So in a scenario like that, the asymmetry percentage or the asymmetry magnitude would need to be bigger than both left and right, you know, measurements of error in order for that limb difference to be considered real. Okay, that's an important concept that I think he did a fantastic job of 
what from what I can tell coming up with, and we've been pushing that narrative probably for the past seven years. If you want to know whether an asymmetry is real, you know, we always talk about signal to noise ratios in sports science. Asymmetry shouldn't be any different. Is it greater than the error in each limb? Okay, that's the first thing. If it is, you know, you've got a real imbalance. That doesn't mean you have to correct it necessarily. It just means you know you've got a real imbalance. I think for imbalances that are consistently greater than the error in the test, and when I mean consistently, remembering we were talking about the variability and the repeatability of those test scores, I think if you were, if you showed an asymmetry that did two things, was greater than the error in the test over more than two test sessions, and showed consistency in directionality. So now we're going back to the component parts and I consistently have an underperforming limb. You know, my right leg is stronger than my left in test session one and that that difference is greater than my variability on each limb. I test in test session two, it's fluctuated a little bit but it's still great in the error. This is still underperforming and again and again you now have a consistently underperforming real asymmetry because of that one weaker or less superior limb. Those are the people I would suggest actually probably might require further investigation. I'm not saying you have to run an intervention or anything like that, but I think that probably very little bad would come from giving a consistently weaker limb more capacity. You know, what, what happens if you give a limb more capacity? It probably means it can tolerate more stress and more load and more strain. That, that's probably not a bad thing. You know, that probably reduces the likelihood of that limb breaching its tolerance capacity for load. Um, and then all you're giving is an athlete the ability to, to handle more training and, and reduce the likelihood of, a, you know, non-contact repetitive stress trauma or, or something to that effect. You know, so that, that's probably the scenario where I think um, people should be looking at asymmetry data. And, and that lends itself to me saying, right, you probably should look at it in your monitoring. You probably should have it in your spreadsheet. But but that those scenarios are probably the only time I might consider taking a deeper dive and trying to consider whether something needs to be actioned. So we're just going to take a very quick break in this chat with Chris. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we have a little chat around force plates in general. So how we get to the metrics that matter, again, for rehab, for performance profiling, and for fatigue monitoring. So anyone that's using force plates or thinking about using force plates, this next half hour is going to be gold for you. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And now back to the episode with Chris. With the kind of emergence of and the affordability of force plates, dual force plates. I don't know if you'd agree or you know definitely more of this area than I do, but the majority of people will be looking at asymmetries from a counter movement using, using a counter movement jump. Would that be right? Yeah, I think it's a very common test to be yeah. used. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is it the right test to be used? Or is there better old, better alternatives? What's your thoughts? Yeah, okay. So um I suppose there's, I'm, I'll answer it in two parts, if that's all right. The first part I'll answer relating to asymmetry uh, and force plates. And the second part I'll answer a bit more broader about yep. metric selection, if that's okay. Um, so I think the first thing to consider when we're testing on force plates is um, I would always go back to the needs and the demands of the sport, the training history of the athlete to try and comprehend whether the test is 
first and foremost, right in that scenario and for that person. Now, jump testing is really commonly used because um, typically it's a very quick, time efficient. It's a good expression of lower body ballistic force production, and it tends to be a decent proxy measurement that correlates pretty well with other important physical performance measures like how fast you run and change of direction speed times and velocity and things like that so it's definitely got some use you know from a from a monitoring perspective for sure you know probably all jump testing to some degree i think when we we're considering asymmetry specifically i think it's worth bringing in that uh, and this stems from some really excellent work that Dan Cohen's put out there in a special issue of the Aspatar Sports Medicine Journal. I hadn't considered this when I read it, and it's another big narrative I push now. Firstly, should we be testing bilaterally or should we be testing unilaterally? Because of course you can do both on force plates, right? Now, you go back to the needs analysis of the sport, and it'd probably be quite easy in some team sport scenarios to go, well, we could probably pick both. You know, it doesn't really matter that much. Um, unless you have a particular affinity or you think there's a you know a, a problem with doing single leg jumping with your athletes for whatever reason but Dan pointed out that um, if I test bilaterally unsurprisingly my movement velocity is much higher than or much greater than when I jump on one leg and that's because I get to spread my body mass through two limbs I'm a lot more stable um and when I stand on one limb, I now have to support all my body mass without any help. Therefore, things like takeoff velocity um, are much, much slower on one leg than they are off of two legs. OK, so as a consequence of that, um, because you don't get any support on one leg from the other limb, that is, sorry, you essentially... I think single leg tests are probably a better measure of true limb capacity. Whereas when I'm on two legs, because I'm spreading the load and my body mass through two legs, you probably have a better understanding of um, compensation strategies in a movement. The movement being the jump in this instance, right? So if someone has a tweak or an injury, you know, if I'm testing on two legs, um, I might see, you know, offloading, away from that injured side more obviously because you know I have two limbs interacting with the ground therefore it's easy for me to do that on one leg I don't have you know the other leg's not in contact with the ground there's no direct ground reaction force contribution from that other limb it has to do all of the work therefore it it's forced to do all the capacity if so to speak right so single leg tests are a better measure of true capacity I think um, double leg tests are probably a better indication of different compensation strategies during that particular task. And I think it depends on what you want to look at. You know, there, there's probably arguments for both. But I think the important thing to appreciate is uh, they give you different information. OK, I also think as well, um, this is a bit nerdy and a bit statsy and I'll try and keep it simple. But I also think that because on a two legged task, you have two legs interacting with the ground and in a one legged task, you don't. Um, I think my personal opinion and its only opinion is that I would quantify those limb differences differently. OK, if I wanted to understand how to calculate an asymmetry from a two legged test, my opinion is that we should be quantifying the difference between limbs relative to the total, you know, output or total force, whatever metricing, because, you know, both limbs are interacting together to produce a, a sum total force of 1200 newtons. And one might be producing 650 and one might be producing 550. But there is a total output there of 1200 newtons. So I think it makes sense to look at the difference, that 100 newton difference relative to 1200 newtons, because that's the output that is given. In a single leg task, however, um, you don't have both limbs interacting with the ground. So I might produce 750 newtons on my right and 650 newtons on my left. I don't think that means that we need to um, quick maths here. I don't think that means we need to interpret the difference relative to 1400 newtons. I think that 100 newton difference 
is then computed relative to 750, the larger value, just because that is how fractions are calculated. And asymmetry is a percentage difference. Percentage difference is a fraction. You know, I've, anyone who's read some of those calculation pieces we've written, there's like nine or 10 different equations you can use to calculate asymmetry. Well, I definitely didn't learn nine ways to do fractions in math class when I was 12. I only learned one way to do it. So I don't totally understand where some of those have come from or why you would do that. I do know that um, for a bilateral test, I would choose one of those different equations and I would choose the one where we interpret the difference relative to the sum total value. And for the single leg tasks, I would choose the one um, that just aligns to how you create fractions, basically. But I think that whether you test bilaterally, whether you test unilaterally, just appreciating they give you different information and both might be worthwhile um, or you might decide that only one of them is is worthwhile, depending on your scenario. Um, and then I think you asked about, that was a bit long-winded, sorry, mate. Right. But um, And then you asked about sort of general metric selection and, and the counter movement jump and whether it's the right test and things like that. Um, so I guess to go back to something I just said at the beginning of that, that first part, typically it's a, you know, it's used as a proxy measurement. Um, it's sometimes used for different purposes. You know, people use it for performance profiling and correlating jump height or something else with how fast people run or a strength test. And usually that, that, that correlation, that magnitude is, is reasonable. You know, it's moderate to large and sometimes very large. And that gives you a basis for saying it's a, it's a half decent proxy measurement. But that's more often than not just been done with outcome measures data like jump height. Which is, which is fine. Um, I think there are other reasons we can use a test, like uh, during return to play for injured athletes and also for neuromuscular readiness or fatigue monitoring seems to be quite a big vogue thing, you know, in the last sort of 15, 20 years. And um, Rob Gathercole's done some really, really cool research on this about the use of sort of jump and field-based tests to detect you know, when scores return to baseline after athletes are put through a grueling workout or, you know, a fatiguing protocol. Um, I think that's, that's okay and has some value. My only sort of slight caveat to that is we as a profession have recognised, rightly so, that there are a bunch of different ways that an athlete can perform a counter-movement jump to achieve the same outcome. You know, and we see that in some of those fatiguing protocols that people like Rob Gathercole has done, which is, well, if jump height is determined by impulse and impulse is force multiplied by time, if I'm knackered, um, I might not be able to really change how much force I produce. I might even, you know, because of fatigue, potentially have a very small drop off in how much force I produce in a jump. But that's OK because I'll just dip a bit lower. I'll just take a little longer to do it. I'll stretch the force time curve out so that I get this positive effect on impulse, which helps me to manipulate how I did my jump and I still achieve the same jump height, right? And I think that's something that we've rightly recognized that how an athlete performs a jump is important just as much, maybe in some scenarios even more than how high they jump. You know, jump height is always going to be important. It's a jump test. And it's also the metric that your key stakeholders get. You know, like no coach comes up and goes, what's their impulse? And you go, oh, it's 250 newton seconds. And they go, oh, goody. You know, no one no one does that. And athletes don't understand that. They understand jump height. It'll always be important. But if there are lots and lots and lots of different ways that when athletes are tired, and, and for clarity, we're talking about you know, fatigue monitoring and neuromuscular readiness and things like that. If there are lots of different ways that an athlete can change what they do to still achieve the same outcome, you've got a lot of different ways um, that you can, you have to search really hard to find, you know, meaningful change, 
I think, is, is an important thing. Remembering that earlier we were talking about it's not just about data at any one time point. It's about tracking change because that's what we do in sports science and looking for trends. Well, if you've got lots of lots of different ways of you know achieving the same outcome, you, you probably now have to search quite hard to find you know true change in some of your variables or some of the metrics that you're monitoring. And I think that raises the question of, um, you know, how hard should we be having to look to find meaningful change? And if your metrics are not showing meaningful change during scenarios where we know our athletes are, you know, tired and where their performance is dropping off, what value is that, you know, metric giving you? Um, and I think we've we've got very reliant on jump testing being a test of convenience because uh, it's quick and it's time efficient and it gives us some information. And, and I don't think that's entirely a bad thing. But I do think for a test where we can achieve the same outcome a number of different ways, we have to take deeper and deeper, deeper dives to go, oh, yeah, found something. This metric shows change when maybe actually, you know, would it be so bad if we just picked a test that was technically a bit harder, you know, and you didn't have to search so hard to find meaningful change. and I spoke to you earlier before we came on and a few other people about, I definitely think some guys at the Institute, you know, back in the early 2000s were using the drop jump for a similar purpose. Now, I appreciate the purpose of the test is very different to the counter movement jump. You know, one is slow stretch shortening cycle where, you know, we get a lot of joint flexion and muscles are doing a lot of work. One uh, is a test that typically, if you do the bounce drop jump type test, um, where we're trying to absorb a, a much stiffer strategy and we want the tendon to do much more of the work and the muscle to work isometrically. Now, so I know they have very different purposes, but to use those two as an example, the drop jump is technically much, much harder. And I think for a harder technical task, um, there are less ways you can cheat the test there are less strategies that you can use to um achieve the same outcome and you probably then have to search a little less hard to find true change um and, and i think that's just something you know that that practitioners uh, some practitioners definitely doing i think it's something that you know all of us you know me included can can think about about you know if i have to just keep hunting and diving through force plate, you know, metrics, uh, you know, how hard do I really want to look to be able to prove that something changed? You know, are we now getting away from, you know, the value and the purpose the test had originally just to show that something changed when really, you know, is it the right test in the first instance? And um, if the purpose of your test is X, then you know, stay true to that purpose and just maybe pick something that's more appropriate potentially. And again, that's not a counter movement jump is inappropriate or anything like that. I also think the the value of the metrics, um, and we were talking about this off air, weren't we, about us saying, well, I run a correlation with a different physical performance test or a surrogate measure and the correlation is pretty strong. So it tells me it has some value as a proxy measurement. We've also seen quite a lot, you know, recently of, lots and lots of correlations being run between outcome measures and loads of different strategy metrics from jump tests. And I think it's, you know, people shouldn't be surprised that a strategy metric doesn't really correlate that strongly with another outcome measure. You know, that's that's definitely what the literature says so far. And intuitively, I don't understand why it would. You know, if I say... Um, I want to correlate how fast you do a 40 meter sprint time with like peak breaking RFD or something to that effect. And I'm not totally dogging that metric, although I don't really believe in it. Um, you know, why do people expect peak one single instantaneous moment of breaking rate of force development to correlate really strongly with how fast you run? You know, because how fast you run is quantified either in velocity or just how long it took you to do that 40 meter sprint. You know, if you want to see a strong correlation between an outcome measure like velocity or time from another proxy test, 
just pick another outcome measure because outcome measures correlate with outcome measures. You know, I don't think outcome measures always correlate that strongly with, you know, very nuanced, discrete strategy-based metrics. So I think that's something that is also worth thinking about. And, and when we think about us as, you know, think about that concept and take it tangibly to the field for people who maybe don't have force plates and the only thing they've got are a set of timing gates and a jump mat, you typically only get outcome measures based data from that. You know, you only get how fast they ran in your timing gate orientated tests and you got how high they did the jump and maybe I can get contact time and RSI. You know, those are for the most part outcome measures based data. You know, don't feel like if that's all you've got, you should be having to do take a deeper dive into metrics that one, you can't properly get. And two, probably aren't going to correlate really that well with how fast your athletes run, because we already know that how fast someone runs and change of direction is a really prominent action during team sports. So, you know, those are valuable tests. And the fact that you're only quantifying time or velocity, those are valuable metrics because it's in every athlete's interest to be faster than their opponents, you know? So if you're only then going, well, look, the only metrics we've got are outcome measures here, outcome measures here and outcome measures here, that's okay. You know, you've got similar purpose metrics from different tests and they will probably still help to inform you. Yes, you won't get as much detailed information as a force plate, but equally taking, you know, the outcome from a different test and correlating it against, you know, 50 different metrics from a force plate, just because I have a force plate is also absolutely not the right thing to do. So you, you've, you've kind of done my work from here. This has been, this has been great because <laughs> you've, you've kind of taken it from an asymmetry conversation to a broader force plate conversation, which expertly done. Just going to dive into your choosing the right metrics paper that you, I don't know how long ago that was, six months? Uh, About a year-ish. Oh, was it? Oh, wow. Jeez. Okay, about a year ago. And in there, you and the fellow authors describe uh, certain metrics that you could, more valuable metrics that you use from a profiling, neuromuscular fatigue, and a rehab uh, scenario. Would you be able to give us a bit of a rundown of that and maybe your opinion based on uh, you know your thinking since then? Because there'll be plenty of people out there who have, like I said about the um, affordability of force plates, that get a force plate and then go, oh, okay, I've got these 400, 300, 200 metrics or whatever. Where do I go? And I've got, I want to answer these specific questions. How do I package that up and go, I think these three are the ones for me when it comes to this. These four are the ones for me when it comes to this. And I guess that's that's what the paper was about, but it's just to get your thoughts and kind of build that out, if that's all right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the premise of that piece was that, um, and I think we talk about, you know, use the counter movement jump as like a, as an example, as a vessel for that piece. But theoretically, if you can, you can do it for any jump test, really. Um, the premise of that piece is, you might use the same test for a different purpose, right? You might use it just as we were talking about for, uh, we call it performance profiling, right? Which is basically um, just these are my these are my metrics that I choose to establish whether they get better, getting better at a jump test from a performance perspective, or these are the metrics that I choose, like I just said, to then correlate to another surrogate measure of performance for my athletes. We then also suggested that some people, and as I alluded to earlier from some of the work that people like Rob Gathercole have done, will use jump testing um, and the counter movement jump for neuromuscular fatigue or readiness, you know, to determine, you know, when, when do my scores get back to baseline if my athletes are tired or fatigued? And then also, you know, things like the counter movement jump um, is embedded into return to play testing batteries for injured athletes. So we've got the same test, but might be being used for different purposes. And and we sort of indicate or, or suggest, it's just an opinion piece really, that you might not choose the same metrics for every scenario, right? Like if you want to know if my athletes are performing their best, then uh, from a performance perspective, take really strong performance related metrics, right? Like jump height. Um, some of those metrics are probably going to be a bit fluffier. I think, you know, people like Jason Lake and John McMahon might say. So jump height is going to be important because it's a jump test. Um, 
power, assuming that you know you you know how the power is being created. Um, you know, peak or mean power, it might be a, a useful metric to monitor. We've, um, I don't know, I might get some backlash for this, but I feel like we've got really preoccupied ever since uh, the late Professor Ed Winter wrote that piece on the misuse of power in sports science, which I think lots of people have read. We've got really preoccupied with power being a bad metric in sports science. You know, it's like people saw a Twitter debate and they read that paper and now they think power's terrible. You know, power's a product of force and velocity. All movement is underpinned by force production. And because in sport, we have time constraints, being able to produce force quickly is really, really important. So how could power be a bad metric? I just think we need to know that what you're monitoring is true mechanical power. That's all. Um, so I think power is, is a useful metric. Um, obviously, jump height, potentially, um, you know, impulse as well, because impulse is the thing that drives how high someone jumps. OK, in that scenario. And, you know, those could be really, really useful performance related metrics from a neuromuscular fatigue um, purpose we sort of took a bit of a deep dive again into some of Rob Gathercole's research, but a, a couple other papers. And the scenario I described earlier was that um, I've just played a 90-minute soccer match. You know, soccer, listen to me, crikey. That deserves to That's be scandalous. Podcast, doesn't right, it? That is cool. scandalous. Cool, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See you later, mate. Um, a 90-minute football match. And, um, you know, I played all 90 minutes. I covered 11K you know, in the game and, you know, there's some pretty strong tissue damage there, you know, for the foreseeable, you know, couple of days. I then want to try and determine whether my athletes, you know, pre-match jump scores that I might have tested, you know, one or two days earlier, come back to baseline, you know, on Monday afternoon when they come into the gym, roughly 48 hours. They might just take a different strategy to achieve the same outcome. And what we found is um, athletes just need more time to produce force in order to produce the same outcome. So time-related metrics on a force time curve seem to definitely hold some value, um, you know, in terms of fatigue monitoring. And that could be something as simple as time to take off. It could be you might break up the different phases of the jump prior to takeoff into braking and propulsive phases and start looking at braking duration, propulsive duration and things like that. So time orientated metrics, I think, definitely have some value for sure. Um, and I think as a consequence of that, if you wanted somewhat an outcome measure to go hand in hand with that, you could choose uh reactive strength index modified which is jump height divided by time to take off knowing that if your performance profiling as well you're already monitoring jump height so if you're already monitoring jump height and then you start looking at duration you can get rsi mod and that almost serves as like your outcome measure for neuromuscular fatigue monitoring as well because you've already got jump height going on and then from an injury based perspective um you also asked what my thinking is since then and um I'll tell you what my thinking is when we wrote the paper, and it has ever so slightly changed uh, off the back of a conversation with Simon Brearley, uh, who people should definitely connect with. He's a really, really, really smart dude. Um, <clears throat> so what we kind of indicated was that um, if you go back and look at some of the ACL injury uh, mechanistic type investigations and some people who work at FIFA, like um, I'm going to get this name wrong. I think it's someone De La Via. I don't know if his name's Franco or Frank or something, Francoise, or I'm just digging myself a hole now. I don't know his first name, but his surname's De La Via. He's kind of done a lot of um, analysis of videos, right, to determine the, the root cause of a non-contact ACL injury. And there's a few different reasons, but one of those reasons is landing awkwardly, you know, from going up from a header or landing awkwardly, you know, when you press and try and put a tackle and your opponent gets past you and now you're off balance and all that sort of thing. So there's definitely landing orientated movements or tasks which can be problematic 
um, and cause injuries in team sport athletes. And I believe, you know, some similar stuff has been shown in rugby from an author called Montgomery, who showed that for non-contact injuries, you know, landing during cutting and change of direction tasks are a big problem, dependent on the kind of whole orientation of your body during that movement. So landing is an issue, you know, or has the capacity to be an issue, I think, from an injury perspective. So maybe landing orientated metrics like landing force and things like landing impulse and maybe even asymmetry data, um, you know, within the context of what we spoke about earlier might definitely um, have their place potentially. My chat with Simon, which I, I didn't really think about it at the time, um, and in fairness, none of us who were, you know, creating that paper did. Simon kind of rightly sort of said, well, if you think about how the time it takes for an ACL injury to occur, you know, it's it's really low in the milliseconds, isn't it? We're talking like, I'm going to paraphrase something that, you know, your Tim Hewitts and your Greg Myers are probably going to shoot me for because maybe I'll get the data wrong. But isn't it something like 50 milliseconds is when the injury, you know, happens? It's almost instantaneous upon contact. Um, and Simon was like, you know, he was really nice and complimentary about the paper. You know, I get on really well with Simon. But he was like, if you think about how an injury like that occurs, there's no measurement in your return to play or injury column or no metric for like, you know, an assessment of ballistic force production, you know, like an RFD, which I think is highly problematic, you know, for example. Um, and it got me thinking, I was like, and, and I just, you know, when I was chatting, it was just a WhatsApp discussion and I hold my hands up. I was like, that's a really good point, Simon. None of us thought of that, you know, I would have given that a lot more due diligence if someone had said that to me when we were writing the paper. So, you know, maybe um, some sort of measurement of force at a given time point or um, I'm not saying I would do an RFD. I definitely don't think I would do an RFD during a jump. My experience of looking into that is that it's a really, really noisy metric, you know, pretty poor and oh, sorry, pretty high CVs, pretty irregular and inconsistent values from trial to trial and session to session. And I think, you know, when your bandwidth for natural variability on a metric like that is so wide, um, your ability to establish meaningful change is very, very difficult. Plus, you know, the number itself, when we quantify that bandwidth, tells us that that metric's not reliable. But I think you could take Simon's notion and maybe apply that to maybe a different test. You know, if you did like an isometric, you know, mid-thigh pull, for example, um, you know, everyone monitors peak force. Lots of people have monitored RFD over the years in those types of isometric tests, which I think is problematic and really unreliable. It almost only just about starts to level out, in my opinion, uh, at about 300 milliseconds from an isometric task. And I know we're sort of slightly going off tangent here, um, but even then it's still questionable reliability at that time frame. And at 300 milliseconds and beyond, um, the determinants of force production at that point are basically the same as the determinants for peak force. So you can measure, you know, force or RFD at this window near 300 milliseconds. You're not really getting the determinants of how force is being produced at 300 is not really any different to the determinants of how force is produced at peak force value, whether that's 1.2 seconds on the force time curve, 0.8 seconds. So, to, to answer that, what would I change now? Although it's a different test, I see value in practitioners maybe looking at force at different time points in something like an isometric mid-thigh pull for injury rehabilitation purposes uh, because at something like 75 or 100 milliseconds, the determinants of force production there are highly neural, you know, whereas once you get after 100 they become a lot more sort of muscular contractile properties creating that value. So assuming that force production at 100 milliseconds is consistent and reliable, and I think it's borderline, but in some cases I think it is reliable, that could be a really, really useful metric. And the reliability probably just stems down from how familiar you know people are with the test um, and making sure that they do it and get the same instructions, have had a lot of practice, done it a few times and things like that. So... 
I don't think we could take a comparable metric like force at 100 milliseconds, force at 75 milliseconds and do that in a jump because I just think you'd get, it's too much going on, it's complex, it's dynamic. The error and the, the noise is high on that in my opinion. But um, maybe taking that notion Simon describes because of how early an ACL injury happens from a time perspective and applying it in something like an isometric multi-joint strength task that has value I think from a return to play injury perspective and probably something that uh, you know isn't done a lot in injury-based research you know normally what we see is injury-based research go and go right straight onto the isokinetic dynamometer you know let's start looking at torque and rate of torque development in the quads and the hamstrings in loads of different contraction velocities and that's probably right to do that but at some point transitioning into a multi-joint isometric task before the athlete is back training, but still during their rehabilitation journey and looking at, you know, those early force time points as well as peak force would probably hold some value. So it was a really useful chat with Simon. I don't think I'd be able to necessarily apply it in a jump scenario, but in a scenario, an isometric test, perhaps. Perfect. Right. I promise you an hour. So I'm going to stick to that as I do with everyone. So I'm going to stick to that promise. But if anyone wants to dive deeper into any of the papers that you've mentioned, your future research, your thoughts, where's the best place? Probably ResearchGate, truthfully. Um, you know, it's like in a sort of largely open access repository for anyone. I used to just call it Facebook for nerds, really, is what I've always referred to it as. But yeah, um, probably just go on to ResearchGate. You can even contact me uh, on email, which is c.bishop at mdx.ac.uk feel free um you know i'll always respond and um the other thing i was going to say is i guess just through through twitter if you wanted yeah. to as well happy days we missed out the uksca chat which i'm i'm sure you're very pleased with <laughs> <laughs> not because you're not interested but because you probably get peppered with it all the time yeah. so i won't be i won't add to the the peppering uh, when it comes them. to uksca so uh Really appreciate your time, mate. It's been a pleasure to get you on. Um, yeah, absolute masterclass. So thank you very much. Cheers, bud. Thanks very much. Really enjoyed the chat and thanks for the invite. My pleasure. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 461 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to the godfather of asymmetries, Chris, for jumping on the podcast and talking us through in such detail about asymmetries and the use of force plates. Big thanks to Hawking Dynamics and Team Builder for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time.